As you're listening to the following music selections, adjust the volume, bass, and treble controls to suit your tastes. episode of Android's Dungeon. Diplomacy. Captures. And the Reformation. Smorgasbord. Keep it coming on Android's Dungeon. Welcome to CFRU 93.3 FM, broadcasting out of the University of Guelph, Guelph, Ontario, Canada. Uh, you can listen to us online at CFRU.ca or uh, through your favorite podcasting website after a certain point. What's our delay right now, Joel? Delay, delay, delay. Uh, it's about three weeks. Three weeks. So that's not bad. You're a little out. Obviously, our stuff is always cutting edge, so unfortunately... By the time you listen to it, it'll be hopelessly out of date. Well, you get the added reward of um, tuning into a local radio station, which is always <laughs> quality. Yeah. So I was going to say, uh, speaking of tuning into a local radio station, <laughs> uh, has, does anyone want to purchase uh, two Focal, uh, Focal Professional CM65, CMS65s? They're sitting uh, next to a Dell monitor, which will also be for sale at some point, and a mixing board. Yep. Um, because, unfortunately, this station will not be around much longer unless people support uh, Bill uh, 420, which is to... <laughs> <laughs> Bill 420, yeah, save our studio, SOS. <laughs> um, no, it, it's because CFRU is going to have some trouble keeping the lights on unless uh, the uh, university coughs up some cash. So uh, call your local representatives. Um, you can mail some letters to them. I find I've mailed letters before, and I've gotten responses, and it felt pretty nice. Can we, do we have the address of Mark McKinnon, Councilman Mark McKinnon? We, I think this is his ward. He's in Ward 1, right? <laughs> what's, what's Mark going to do? <laughs> you can bug Mark if you want. I don't know. So uh, there's a there's a crisis in your ward, Mark. <laughs> yeah, they're, there's, they're going to miss their uh, board game radio show. That's right. Uh, yeah, in case you didn't know, Android's Dungeon is a show about board games, movies, music, um, occasionally horror mangas. Cinco de Mayo. Cinco de Mayo, which either, depending on when you're listening to this, which will be 100%, it's it's already happened. Did you load up on tacos? Uh, what do you I have? Do you have a, a cerveza? A Corona? Are you talking about today? or uh, Two days ago? No. Sunday? Back on Sunday when it was Cinco de Mayo? Oh. Mm, I, I really don't like Mexican beer for the most part. So. <laughs> fair, fair, fair. It's Who right. does? Uh, oh, by the way, uh, so... Maybe some people are really good at taking beer back, beer bottles back to and cans to the the beer store. Hmm. Um, but I tend to, I want it's one of these things where it's like I like reaching critical capacity before I start doing stuff. And so you for, get a decent chunk. Of cash. Yeah, you get it feels good, but it's all the problem with doing that is is that stuff starts to smell after a while. Oh yeah. And I even rinse out my bottles and cans because it, that you can't. I find it's too gross otherwise, and things get sticky. And yeah. in the summer, you get fruit flies, hundred percent if you you don't do that. But um, we had uh, Kale's parents over, and they love Corona and that sort of stuff. And 
one of the things people who drink Corona really are fond of is putting limes mm. into beer bottles. And I've heard that, A, if you do that, they can't recycle them. Yeah. Uh, I think it screws up that whole uh, glass process, so they just end up tossed. The other part, too, is if you factor them into the fact that I don't take things back real soon, um, <laughs> believe it or not, fruit tends to get moldy. <laughs> limes. And, and uh, I was, so I was noticing a very sharp smell coming from the section. It wasn't until we got ready to do a big run. I was like, oh, my God, these are disgusting. These, these beer-soaked limes that were inside the Does the beer store still take them? They took them. Huh. I, they probably biffed them, but uh, I got my five cents or whatever it was worth. Nice. Because I have a boycott against the beer store. They pay me. <laughs> I show up with recycling and I get You're stuff. working really hard on putting them out of business seven dollars <laughs> at a time. <laughs> they're, they're, even though God knows what they're getting from this. Anyway, whatever. Uh, Joel, what have you been playing recently? I got a chance to try. Um, so... For those of you who don't know, Diplomacy has a couple ways that you can play Diplomacy. Just do a quick overview of Diplomacy. What's Diplomacy? Diplomacy is a game from 1959. They call it uh, the original war game. Some do. Um, It's a a complicated history for sure, but a simple game. Mm -hmm. Uh, Made famous, I guess, by Henry Kissinger. They said they used to play it in the White House. Wasn't it Jonathan Kennedy's uh, favorite game? Favorite game, yeah. So they were always playing. It's basically a simple uh, move your chips around the map kind of board, and yeah. it's a map of Europe in 1901. So in 1901, you're battling to uh, to reign over Europe, but you have a very small force. You're one of the seven nations, all with equal power. And the only way that you're going to get anywhere is to negotiate with your neighbors make deals, make alliances, break alliances, betray people in the optimal way until you either come into a scenario where two or three of you are at a deadlock and everyone else has been eliminated or ultimately you get 18 scenario, 18 territories, you win the game. Which is super rare in like like tournament diplomacy. You're aiming for a three or two person draw which is the less people in the draw, the more points you get, and then you move on into the next game. Mm-hmm. So diplomacy's been around for a long time, and one of the main things about diplomacy that is makes it really unique is the fact that, A, it's really simple. Like, there's no dice, there's no cards, there are, it's pure, uh, pure player interaction. Yeah. And everyone does their moves simultaneously in the sense of you program all your moves based on what you think is going to be best for you and based on what... I talked to Joel, and Joel said, "I've got your back, bro." Because you can't a lot of things you can't do on your own. So if you, you, if Kale and I are fighting over a territory, and we each are trying to throw one unit into that territory, we bounce back, and our units, our moves cancel each other out. But if Joel supports me into that territory, now it's two against one, and it's mine. Now what happens is that your a lot of faith is being placed <laughs> in your ally or your friend to help you out here. So that's where you end up in these situations where it's like. Oh, don't screw me. Please don't screw me. <laughs> but anyway. So if you're here in Guelph, and well, you don't even need to be in Guelph, really, but it, we have foraged and grown a local diplomacy community. And we have an endless game going, or we have endless games going in a league, and everybody has their own personal scores and their records as far as wins and losses and draws. And you can, at any point, 
contact us at uh, I don't know how do you reach us Android Dungeon Radio you can check out our podcast yeah search us on Twitter and uh, Facebook and, give us well, a tweet I don't know if we're on Facebook but if you go to the Guelph Board Gaming Group that we're basically the only ones participating in there aside from others yeah so. and if this kind of negotiation and uh, <clears throat> tactics lends your ear and you and you think you'd like to give it a try let us know well because we'll, you do we'll get you in a game you do games where it's one one move a day right and uh, yeah so that's what this is what i'm getting at is is diplomacy has a many many mediums that it's been played over and it started in person and it was a big challenge to get that many people together uh and then it kind of expanded so it became a male thing so you had one arbitrator it was really cool did you read that article that you sent me <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a fair question yeah it's... i mean did you read the yeah i mean so it used to be published the results were published in magazines these yeah. uh gamer magazines so you would have to mail all the other people in the game or at least whoever you were negotiating with make a deal and then mail in your orders to the magazine the magazine would publish the results yeah there's a what Joel's referring to is there was an article i came across recently that was it was basically about the it, the the focus or the the main article was about a, a diplomacy convention and it sounds like when you get in these things like i want to see a documentary about it kind of like how the scrabble conventions oh, and yeah. these characters and these these weird sort of subcultures and the personalities that develop but there yeah. are things about these people who like somebody who wants to play diplomacy and he start puts an ad in a magazine about who wants to play diplomacy with me and this these are the days when people because these these hobby magazines this is how you would make friends if you're in a small town That's or how something. you can communicate yeah before the internet so. well that's the thing like we've got enough people here in guelph to play a game but if we were in a situation like that also regionally we would have to find people mm-hmm. now over the internet so as things develop from mail magazines to email and now there are online web applications so you can actually play uh through a web app called backstabber with no e backstab bbr i really like how clean it is but are are there some bugs to it or some foibles there are a few bugs and there's a problem where there's no notification when you need to retreat so sometimes people will miss that yeah uh and you set the time so that's what we play on and we set the time to 12 hours actually so you do two moves a day okay uh with six hours to do your retreats and builds yeah and uh, it's working out pretty well. But there's also an app, which a uh, friend of the show, Stefan Barrett, is always going on about. Oh, my God. Have you tried Conspiracy? Have you tried Conspiracy? <laughs> he, how many games of Conspiracy <laughs> do you think he's played? Is it some absurd so number? So many. I mean, he was ranked 30th for a while. In the world, right? Yeah. In the world in this app. And uh, so he's, he's played a ton. So he, uh, tactically, he's he's excellent. He knows exactly what he's doing. Um Tactics aren't going to get you very far in diplomacy, though. You need uh, tact to go with your tactics. <laughs> I like that. That's good. Because that's what Joel just mentioned there is super important because you can play the game like a computer and m- modify everything to the most optimal move possible. But if you aren't talking to people and maybe you've looked at something the wrong way or maybe Joel, it has nothing to do with you, but Joel said something to someone else and, whoa-oh, seed of doubt planted, yeah. your plans have gone up in there. That's what makes diplomacy so nerve-wracking. Fake messages. Fake messages. Sending other people your chat history. Yeah, exactly. You can't trust anyone. You, you, And that's where this... It's a fantastic... It's a chip-taking game in its core because there's only so many chips out there. I take one from here and you lose that chip. And eventually there's not going to be enough to go around. And that's when when the chips are down. <laughs> You'll see what happens. So, Just, yeah. yeah. Just as an example, there was one time where Germany... I was playing as Italy and uh, Germany 
up above us here was not involved in the combat at all, but was in a so-called alliance with Austria and Turkey to the east. And Austria was attacking me, and I was attacking Austria, and we were in this fight, and it just seemed like everything I did was successful. But the truth was is that in their group chat, Germany was sending everything that Austria planned to do to me. Yeah. So I had perfect information, and <laughs> <laughs> it just made it so I could respond. Oh, adequate. my God. So it didn't cost Germany anything, right? Yeah. But it, they knew that later on in the game, they would have this social capital with Italy. Now, at what point when you were seeing those messages did you think, like, am I being baited into something? Like, I get one successful move, maybe two, and then they're yeah, going to set exactly. me up for a giant betrayal? There was a situation where he said, uh, I need to support him to attack you. Uh, so that he doesn't know. Yeah, which <laughs> is a classic. A situation. classic. Like, okay, what are you telling him? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Was, I just need to borrow your planet for a <laughs> It's too haunted by that. But you can see that there are a lot of uh, metagame uh, situations in diplomacy. How reliable are you? How often do you betray people? Or yeah. um, what's your attitude towards yeah, it? Yeah, even? Yeah, yeah. And everything like that it comes into play when people make these decisions and submit their orders yeah. uh, twice a day. And that's where you get into, too. So it's like it can be very personal. And um, I think uh, I messaged, I actually sent John Kay that um, that story. And I mentioned, I said something about how diplomacy is nerve-wracking. And he said diplomacy is the only game he's ever played that resulted in a, in a yelling match between him and someone else. <laughs> and that was his roommate in university at the time. It was yeah. just like, it's a game that, it, it's because it's, Every now and then, like when you play Resistance or something, you feel betrayed. Like you actually, it perfectly grabs that feeling of I, I thought you were on my side. <laughs> Diplomacy, we were I think, in this together. we were in this together. Diplomacy, I think, feels even worse. Yeah, like it, it's just like it's not just a knife in the back. It's a knife in the back that's been twisted and corkscrewing your heart and then pulled out because it, it's just it's a long game too. And I think that's what makes it even worse because yeah. the Resistance one and done. You know, it's like oh, you got me. Diplomacy, you're sitting there thinking about it. <laughs> At least I, in my you one used game. to have nightmares, right? <laughs> I, I, that's what I said. I told Joel I would, I would literally wake up in the morning trying to decipher my dreams from reality of, of being betrayed or somebody. Well, I stabbed him. <laughs> screwed up. Yeah. But anyway. But Backstabber has uh, the app has a bunch of new maps now. And honestly, I give them a try, and this is just not for me. They're, they seem fine, but there was a Cold War one, so it's one-on-one, so take away all of the negotiation aspect. How's that work? It's just, uh, you get the whole whole map of the world there, and they've kind of blown it out so it's a little bit smaller. Yeah. And then you're fighting over basically two, two spheres of influence. One is like North America, South America, and the other one is Europe, and somehow Africa's not okay. <laughs> there at all just sounds like weird uh like abstract twilight struggle or something minus too much yeah, no that's what i was thinking i'd rather play twilight struggle is what i was thinking exactly but when maybe I if you played it. a million games of diplomacy this is oh this is novel this yeah is it's a really perfectly crap like i don't know if it's balanced or not it can't be there's no it way. might be who knows no way but uh no like good for them for being Trying, creative yeah. but uh i think diplomacy is it's the negotiations for me and that's what it, i think because uh, spoil spoiler alert, Joel and I have been trying to make a game for quite some time, and we're trying. I think we we've kind of settled on there has to be two separate sort of styles of games. But I love what diplomacy does, and I think it's what the main thing you take away from it, and that Game of Thrones attempted to recreate, but they, it lost. Um, what what makes diplomacy perfect is it's so elegant, so streamlined, just like mm. this. You're just doing this. That's it. That's the only thing you have to worry about. 
Um, Game of Thrones does the programming of moves as well, but at the same time, it's way more complicated in sort of reactions and responses and program moves you can do. So you lose, like Game of Thrones game takes forever because of this, and you still get yeah. the sense of betrayal, but it, at the end, it just doesn't come close to diplomacy yeah. simplicity. What Jack's referring to is simultaneous orders. Yeah. So everyone issues their orders in secret, and then they're all revealed and executed simultaneously. Well, yeah, and it is, does Game of Thrones do them uh, simultaneous, or is it still broken down? simultaneous, but you still break out into fights, right? Yeah. Because you still got to flip those cards. And it's just been a while since I played it, so. But anyway, it's just not, Joel hates Game of Thrones, <laughs> and I, I understand 100% why yeah. he hates Game of Thrones. I don't despise it as much. It's just way too long. That's my problem. Yeah, it's just a bit too much of the theme. <laughs> way too it. long. But Jack. not <laughs> enough of the good theme of yeah. the negotiation, which is exactly the best part. Of well, the exactly, and that's and that's what Game of Thrones should be about because I think they got what it got bogged down in this the idea of like, all right, we'll have both worlds because people love these fights, and but in reality, I think what people really love about Game of Thrones is the fights are cool, but they're just visual popcorn. What they love are the the machinations and the politicking of things, and yeah. that's what the game kind of. Uh, neuters in an attempt to try to appease all the different sides of things. Just so, like the show. Just like the show. <laughs> but we can talk about that maybe uh, in a bit. <laughs> but anyway, uh, diplomacy, if you want to uh, maybe play a game with some sharks, God yeah. forbid maybe that you might learn something. But can't even give diplomacy a rating. It's like a perfect game, but it is its own thing. It's yeah. an entity in itself. Well, it's it's it, like it, chess. Like, Can you rate chess? No, it's, it's, it is like it is the foundational yeah. game of that type uh, maybe someone's gonna argue with me that's like no <laughs> there's something else like go is the whatever i mean i don't think you compare go and chess but who knows um anyway so we did we did diplomacy little chat here uh speaking of diplomacy uh we got one of the games uh one and done that has been on my list for gmt a uh, gmt game another one um which was here i stand and it is a big boy set in 1517, uh, the War of Reformation, and you have six people getting together and trying to figure out what, what you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> and that's going to tie into maybe overall impressions of this. But I'll let Joel talk about it because um, I want to hear what his thoughts are on this. You got to wonder why the 95 thesis card even exists. Thematic. The game begins with it. And then it's gone forever. <laughs> just meant to be thematic, I guess. Yeah, it's cool. I mean, you get to throw it down. So uh, the game is uh, four countries and two religious forces. I don't want to call them countries because countries didn't necessarily exist at that time, but they are powers. Mm. So you've got the Ottomans in the east sweeping in with big armies. You've got uh, the English in the west just trying to just trying to have a baby really. <laughs> explore the new world have a kid and then in the middle you've got the Habsburgs which are basically the military force behind the church or the papacy and the French which I wasn't really sure I think they kind of start leaning towards uh, the Catholic Church and then who knows they could end up on either side but uh, the important thing that happened in 1517 was that Martin Luther, uh, was tired of talking to popes and or bishops and everything and trying to get them to see his way. And he just decided, you know what, we're going to do our own thing. And he w went up to that church and bam, 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 95 Thesis, uh, which was basically, we don't, 
we don't want to pay the church anymore to go to heaven. We don't yeah. want to pay the church to get out of purgatory. Uh, let's let's just leave it up to each. Need individual. to reform the church. Need to fix this yeah. stuff. So he was the morning star of the Reformation, they say, and he he founded the Protestant religion, uh, which was fine for a little bit. Uh, it was growing, and this is thematically in the game. It actually says. Uh, Martin Luther's faith and conversions went mostly unnoticed in the Habsburg uh, electorates for a region time. But once you hit that 12, that's when... So once you hit 12 regions... Critical mass. All of a sudden, the church is a little concerned. Yeah. And that's when things get militaristic. Yeah. So what Joel's describing here is... So here I stand is a war game at its core because you have a, a big map of Europe... And every region is represented by different colors and different language zones. And what's cool is that the game starts with, like Joel was saying, you throw down, it's a card-driven war game. So all cards have two different sections to them. They have a number in the top left, and they have the central area. And the number in the top left are basically command points. And uh, if you've ever played a GMT war game before that uses cards, like Twilight Struggle or something, you're, they're, they're your ops. Yeah. And uh, you're allowed to play a card either for its... Uh, command points or you can play the event on the card and they both do different things sometimes you're required to play an event if it says mandatory on it and if you do that you usually get two command points to do something with but mandatory events are usually kind of these historical um they're, they're more of the simulation side of things because they force the game to change into a different state and like joel's saying let's for example after you get 12 electorates as the um, as the Protestants, and it is a certain turn, then the Schmalkaldic League is formed, which is the militant, uh, the armies of the, yeah. the Protestants. Now they've got guns. Yeah, they're, well, now they're not armed. Guns, but <laughs> and what's cool is that there's a whole di- diplomacy chart as well, and what happens is, in like other games, it's like war is this abstraction where it's like, eh, I'm going to betray Joel this turn. In this one, you're not betraying Joel necessarily this turn because it's there's a formal phase where everyone's negotiating, and you go around the table and you have to declare what you're doing this turn. So I have to say, forming an ally with, uh, I'm allying with Joel, and when it gets to Joel's turn, he's like, I agree, we're allied. Change a little chit. Now you guys are allied. Uh, conversely, if I decide to say, I'm going to war, <laughs> that's your own decision. It costs you some points, but now. You're at war, and that's the only time when you can actually move your troops into somebody's posi- uh, places. That's the only time you can actually formally take things from them. You can't yeah. just, yeah, eh, just do a just full imagine fast diplomacy if that was a factor, right? Each, before each round, you had to be like, just so you know, I'm attacking you this time, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm paying to do it. <laughs> so you really mean it, yeah. and that's the same for everyone. There are exceptions to all these rules. There are ways to declare war without doing it in the main phase. In fact, the English have a card, and everyone, every faction has a home card. The and the papacy has two. And like the mandatory events, you always have to play your home card before the round is done. And the English home card actually allows them to declare war on France, um, Scotland, or I'm not sure the Habsburgs as well for as part of the card. So you can play it outside of the mm. diplomacy phase, and then you get five CP to do stuff with. And there are minor powers, like I mentioned. So there's Scotland over here, and there's Genoa, uh, Belgium, uh, Venice, Belgium, uh, hung- uh, Hungary, Bohemia. Yep. And they all are sort of, some are natural allies with other people, some aren't, and it's... There's a lot going on. <laughs> and put in perspective the rule book. There's two books. The rule book is 44 pages long. And then there's the scenario book, which is another, I think, 40 pages long. Although I'd say about half of that is... Necessary to set up in one way or another. Yeah. And then there's historical... Like, you can if you're just interested in reading about 
what is going on. Yeah. Then you can ex- like understand like because all it'll explain all the debaters, explain the uh, leaders and the reformers. Oh, yeah, and I thought these... that was really interesting how Victoria after after every debate between the Catholics and the Protestants would look up each oh, of the debaters on the fly. and was uh, looking at their Wikipedia page to find out well, <laughs> where they came from oh, and what really they cool. did. Oh, that's really cool. I was thinking she just knew already, but uh, no. either way, it, that's pretty neat. Yeah, so it's a, it's a heavy historical, uh, I want to say recreation, but some things will never happen. So, for example, going back to the English team player, which uh, that was me, uh, like Joel was saying, that one of the big things when you're Henry VIII is that you're trying to have a kid. And you can't have a kid until you've gotten rid of Catherine and you've married Anne Boleyn. She's infertile. She's in, it's just not working. So, but in order to do that, you got to get a divorce, and that leads to the parts where you're begging the Pope for a divorce, and the Pope can go, mm, "What are you going to give me?" and yeah. shake you down. And there's, you can get into these sorts of things where you're exchanging territories, giving cards away, declaring war, being uh, allying with somebody. You can do it. It didn't happen in this game. You can loan troops of mercenaries or. Um, or your ships, because they're boats too. Yep. <laughs> and there's so much stuff going on. And um, I'll let Joel go from here. Not to mention mandatory cards. So there's like, regardless of how you play each round, something is going to happen. Yeah. There's a mandatory card every turn, and there's a mandatory event at the end of each round, which is basically saying if this card wasn't played, it exactly. triggers now. Yeah. And so the the world is developing as it did in that historical period, and that's really cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, what to say about it, really? It's it's a really complicated game, for sure. I mean, it's, this isn't a game where you're just going to be like, hmm, what should I get my son for Christmas? Oh, my God. And, oh, here I stand. Well, he really likes history. <laughs> No. This is, well, it's it's like Age of Empires level uh, historical accuracy for sure. I mean, a lot of kids uh, bragged about passing their high school history test because they played a lot of Age of Empires and they knew all about the Crusaders and Joan of Arc and everything like that. And they were able to answer the questions accurately because they listened to the cutscenes. Oh, interesting. I I never played Age of Empires, so I didn't ever. Oh, it's bang on. Oh, interesting. Uh, but here I stand is as accurate. And you know GMT does this because you look at uh, Twilight Struggle and how accurate it is to the Cold War and how it tries to tie everything in and themes of growth of the Soviet Empire and the growth of the American Empire and all these people and events that shaped the world yeah. at that time. Here I stand is very much the same thing, but it's it's basically Twilight Struggle, which is the Catholics versus the Protestants, thrown in ah, with four other yeah, yeah, yeah. warring nations, yeah. all of which uh, are basically gently and sometimes not so gently pushed <laughs> into one side or the other. You yeah. want to help the Catholics, you want to help the Protestants, uh, but you want to do it in such a way that they're not so strong that this literal uh, tug of war, mm-hmm. which has a chart that just goes back and forth where it's like, I gain points, they lose points, they gain yeah. points, I lose points is not so far in one way or the other that they just win. Yeah, because exactly. obviously you are the one that wants to just prop them up enough so that they don't create enough problems for you <laughs> so that you can win. Yeah. And the reason why I think the um, the Habsburgs win so much is because you can see this natural path that's supposed to happen because it's triggered right away the Diet of Worms. First round, Diet of Worms exists. It's a mandatory card where the Habsburgs and the Catholics combine their power of cards to play against uh, Martin Luther. Yep. And right there it's saying, listen, Habsburg, you need to be making sure that 
Protestantism doesn't grow in what is now Germany because, and this is what Stefan learned, is that he let uh, the Protestants run rampant in Germany and then Schmaldeklied ha- happens. What is it? Schmalkaldic. Schmalkaldic League happens. And what he didn't understand, and also the Protestants well, didn't we understand, to, is that everywhere where everywhere that was Protestant was now under um, political control. Political control <clears throat> of the Protestants. And <laughs> so, quick interruption. It, that's something else. Another layer to this game. So everyone's got their own sections with their little hexes and, and symbols on their board. And by default, vast majority of the game uh, is going to be considered to be Catholic. What happens is Protestantism moves around through Reformation attempts and various cards is that uh, there's tons of dice chucking. And if if you're scoring properly, then you flip over a territory and now it's considered to be a Protestant territory. So what Joel is referring to is that uh, Stefan, who was playing the Habsburgs and Victoria was playing the papacy, Victoria was just doing what she was supposed to do. But Stefan should have been propping her up because... The Habsburgs own Germany at the yeah. beginning of the game, and they are getting the way victory points are assigned is that everyone's player sheet for all the stuff that's on there. Uh, you look, and it's similar to root in that you look down, and whatever you've removed, that's how many VP you're getting. So when Protestantism is just spreading across Germany, the Habsburgs are like, hmm, I haven't lost any keys yet, so big deal. <laughs> then all of a sudden, Schmalkaldic League forms, all of a sudden, they lose a bunch of actual spaces, and now, uh-oh, I've got some problems. Yeah, and what I think he didn't know, and what I also didn't know, no, is that he gets a victory point for each of those key territories that he was just watching slowly convert. Yeah, and that's <laughs> that's just um, first game, and first game you know, figuring things out and yeah. it doesn't, and this is what I think we're going to get into here is that, um, it, it, for me, it's impossible to attempt to review a game. I've only played once, especially one as complicated as, yeah. uh, here I stand, but the, I had a great time, but my God, it was, I, I yeah, tell me about England. I thought it was simple. Um, but it was the, the amount of fishing through the rules for clarifications on stuff was just so, it was starting to kill me at some points because every time because I told Joel before we started playing I've read the rule book three times I've watched yeah. videos on it I've read all the supplementary material yeah just just for reference Jack worked really really hard <laughs> to try to get everybody on a level first of all he he was adamant that everybody read just two two please, guides two please, small please, guides just help me. <laughs> and learn their own nation's abilities right yeah. just figure out what you should be doing or and then what... on top of all that you read the rules three times yeah and the, and the rules are when you're reading them on paper you're like this this doesn't seem bad i've got this but the problem is it's like studying for a biology exam and you've got so many different things to worry about and, and everybody's got, looking to you and everyone's looking to you and to be <laughs> fair other people like i was getting a lot of help from everyone and the rule book was moving its way around but how many times was there a stop can i do this or hold on how does this work and you it's like <laughs> Me, Harry, and Curtis all had the rule book on our phone. Everyone he had, had the rule book, book in his Stephen hand. had the rule book on his <laughs> And I think, I don't know, Victoria was looking stuff up too, but it was just, there's so many, and this is what I was talking to Caleb about, there's so many edge cases. Every time I thought I had figured out, there'd be something that would like... And it's these uh, cards too, right? Because the cards can often overrule uh, natural rules because it says, well, in this card, it's like, oh no, you don't get to do that. Oh no, the card says I can't. Okay. Yeah. So in this situation, you do. 
and then I, like I was saying is that when the day ended yesterday was that like I still don't understand how boats are supposed to really work <laughs> uh, because it, I thought they were a lot simpler but no they're not I st- sieges we screwed up a couple times and this gets into what 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 was my when we get to when we talk about Megasiv's actual board layout what's one of my biggest complaints or our biggest complaints about it the components well, it's like the size of some of these spaces. Yeah. In, oh, yeah, yeah. And in this case, the boats are hilariously large, and they end up like you're supposed to be docked or port in ports and things, and you've got all these units in stacks, and they understand in some places like London and Paris that theoretically you're going to have tons of guys there, so they have a little separate box on the board for you to stack stuff in there. But once you get into different sections, it's it becomes a, an exercise in um, balancing all your units, and you've got leaders that you're moving <laughs> around as well, and it it it. it it is very difficult physically, I think, maybe to get a feel on what you are doing. And when you're trying to worry about the rules, sometimes things get mixed up too. Like Stefan did a siege he wasn't supposed to do because they still had sea zone ports or the, the boat was still there, mm. so he wasn't supposed to. And yeah. there are just a couple of rules we were screwing up here and there, but I don't know. It was a lot. I think it's, if we did it again, obviously it would be a lot smoother and we'd know some more things, but I think there would still be edge cases. But even with Megasim, yeah. I feel like it took us how many times to play before it was like, okay, true. we're all right. It's true. But you know what? It's complicated. It's difficult. But at the end of the day, I think that it was all worth the effort. Did you actually have, did you have a good time? And you're not hurting my feelings. Abs- no, absolutely. It was one of the best games we've ever played, I think. Really? Yeah. I'm I think glad it's you liked that. Very really. difficult and uh, ambitious. It, <laughs> ambitious is a perfect way to describe it. But... Uh, you really, you really did get a feel of the heroes of the time, yeah. the events that occurred, yeah. the powers, and how they were all intertwined. How, you know, you needed to speak with the Pope, but you also wanted uh, your church to get some independence because yeah. of your own interest. Start my own church, and like so, it, it's and that's how the game. What's cool is that it just kind of funnels you into these natural developments of the way history would going, not in a way that feels really forced like so sometimes you play a game and it just feels like someone took a crowbar to it and it's like all right you have to do this now and it's like well hold on a sec doesn't make any sense but linear linear and whereas a good game a good especially a game like this it's and root does a decent job of this too is it this is it's this organic development of how your your faction should be behaving in a certain way and through the cards and the way history kind of pushes you it's like this makes more sense so i'm trying to I'm trying to have a kid, need to get rid of this wife, so I'm going to need divorce. The Pope doesn't want to give me divorce. Well, screw you, I'll start my own religion. And the Pope doesn't want Protestantism to spread, but the English player gets two v- or a VP for every two English spaces that are Protestant until Mary shows up, and then Mary wants to get rid of the Protestants. And then there's all these different things going on. It sounds ridiculous. It's absolutely... When I was setting it up and describing things, I felt like I was doing a parody of a game. <laughs> it was like... <laughs> It sounds absurd because Henry literally has the English literally have a pregnancy roll chart, which sounds like a joke. But whenever you change wife, you roll a die and you apply modifiers. And if you get a six, uh, Edward is born. And then and by if you're still playing the game by turn six, because spoiler alert, we stopped at turn four or turn five, four, turn four, which is what the rule book even says. Play up to turn four on your first game just to get a taste for it. Yeah. Um, then you get new leaders. The Pope is constantly changing as throughout the game. Uh, I think the Protestants, it's Luther the whole time. I don't think he if changes. He, unless he dies. Unless he's, you have screwed up so badly at some point that he he's been burned, burned at yeah. the stake. But, which is another part. And I think, Possible. That, was, I think that was the most fun uh, for me as a player. Was, I was just doing my own thing because I didn't really know what was going on. But I feel like the Protestants and Catholics had a very clear 
goal of what yeah. they were trying to accomplish. So Joel was the Protestant Victoria the Catholics, and you had these these debates where you're Direct. calling, you're directly conflicting with people, you're directly converting spaces. Um, you Victoria is able to, as the Pope, she can uh, excommunicate people. So uh, every turn, I think Martin Luther was excommunicated, <laughs> sent away, <laughs> sent again. away. But Joel has a card, uh, their home card of the Protestant is called Here I Stand, which allows you yeah. to. Because the Pope can call debates an attempt to embarrass or disgrace um, or burn at the stake a, a reformer and convert spaces, which is more dice-chucking. But yeah. if you call in a stuttering reformer, because there's some control you have over this to an extent, and uh, if, if it doesn't look good for the, the Protestants, Joel go, here I stand. All of a sudden, like, Luther tags in. And, uh-oh, he's, he's <laughs> dun, pretty good. Dun, dun. And that was the really cool thing is that Here I Stand as an event had two different abilities. One was play any card from the discard pile. Which is incredible. The other was... You never used that, did you? No. Yeah. Bring in Luther, which was key, especially, like, if you lose a debate, it's it bad. doesn't matter what the difference in the debate was. They yeah. get a territory for every hit. Yeah. It's huge. It could be... You could lose six territories, which is half of your land. If it was at the beginning of the game, if it was the Diet of Worms, you could just go down to nothing. Well, which is what you were saying is that weren't you looking up some Yeah, rules? apparently it's the hardest possible to win as the Protestants in an experienced game. Because everyone should be playing optimally. And There's be... some statistics here for your Jack. From the 15... 2008 World Board Game Championships. Uh, the most desired nation was the Ottomans. Okay. Second was Protestant. Oh. And yet... In every game, Protestant came last. <laughs> I, I don't get it. I'm missing something. The Ottomans, but again, like like Joel's saying, in case you haven't picked it up from this, and we'll just we'll go to a music break in a second here. But every faction plays differently. Everyone's yep. doing something different. Now, English, Habsburgs, and Protestants, I say, are the most similar to each other because they're the major powers and they're kind of doing their own thing. Um, but the French are building chateaus. That's their main thing to get some uh, VP throughout the game. I'd say they were maybe the, mo- the dullest faction uh, mm. based on what they were doing. Because you just you, you bail, build a fancy house and you I'd be up for a chateau, though. Oh, it's be fantastic. Nice. And uh, the English are just trying to get some kids. but And the Habsburgs are just trying to hold on to territory. And But the Habsburgs have tons of decisions to make because they have a giant swath of territory. And like you were saying, they should be working with the Pope to keep things down. But you don't want to work too much with somebody. Yeah. And then you have the Ottomans, which are uh, not only are they swooping across uh, the east and will eventually become uh, at war with uh, the Habsburgs if things progress properly, uh, but they can also start pirating. And eventually ports aren't safe because they're sending out boats with Barbarossa and Corsairs. Yeah. And, and that's how they get VPs, They get too. VPs from pirating, and they take cards from people. So. Yeah. Eventually, you want to see, and it's all about keeping things in check, which I think a lot of these games are all about. Hit the leader. Hit the leader. Make sure nobody's getting too good because it's in people's interests. And this is where maybe you can get a little athematic is that if, let's say, if you're the Habsburgs and the Pope is doing too well, they're about to win, do you start to help the Protestants a little bit? Because maybe, maybe you should. It's not thematically appropriate, but maybe it, you could read it as like, hmm, Charles wasn't, the Pope's getting a little cocky. Charles is going to help uh, Luther out of it. Yeah, I don't know. yeah, there are other ways to make the Pope lose VPs for sure. One thing that I should mention, because maybe maybe people are wondering, well, why don't the Habsburgs just kill the Protestants? They don't oh, have any yeah. military. They're not allowed in Germany. Or not, you're not allowed in the Germanic-speaking area until the Schmalkaldic. Schmalkaldic. The Schmudi-Ludi League. They can't go into the electorates. They can't go into that area at all until, um, I'd say it's mid-game. 
So yeah, they got to do other four, things. Either they're just standing at the border waiting, or they're. Uh... I guess you could say th- historically, it's like they're. It's not enough of a threat at that point. It's just it's obnoxious. Nobody likes them. But then as soon as they start, oh oh, these guys have militarized. Now you're there's a formal war declaration too, which is interesting. Yeah. Um, so anyway, here I stand. Lot to it. I think most people. Oh yeah. I think most. I I'd say Harry was maybe. I don't. It might be a stretch to get him to play, but we'll see. I don't know if Victoria would do it again. Curtis, I'm on the fence about, but I'd, I'd definitely do it again. Stefan seemed upset we got the game early because he kept he wanted to go more. <laughs> Stefan's always down for more. Yeah, which is he's great. the guy that was trying to get me to play this Cold War. Oh, the uh, diplomacy. diplomacy. Anyway, so hopefully we get another game at some point. It might be a tough sell, but uh, uh, I really would look forward to trying it again and hopefully do the same faction. Yeah. And play a little better. If you're a serious gamer, oh yeah, let us know. Give here I stand a try. All right, music break. We'll be back. FM. What you just heard was In the Pines uh, by 
Oh lord, I've already forgotten his name. Uh, whatever. It's uh, <laughs> it's uh, on from the uh, this compilation series of Dark Country. There are five of them, and uh, some of them. Kurt are... Cobain. Kurt Cobain. The, the Nirvana did do a cover yeah. of. Uh, so it's one of these songs that. I hear it once. I think, wow, I love this. I love this progression. I love the the, the lyrics. I love how it's kind of moving through this kind of ominous little story, like this American folk tale. Um, but then you look at it, and it's like, oh, how many people have done variations on this? Holy smokes! <laughs> like it's just a classic that has been redone many, many times. Um, anyway, in the pines, I think Danny Ferrant, I think, is the name of the artist that did this particular version of it. So when we left, we were talking about Here I Stand. Joel had a little more chat during the music break about it as well, just uh, about maybe starting up an industry, side industry of um, kind of like, you know, the Broken Token makes inserts for games. Maybe there's an industry for making uh, rule supplements to games <laughs> to uh, clean up. I guess the problem there, the, the rule book is really the IP, right? Like, I mean, the, the board itself and the pieces and everything, the mechanics, yeah. you can't actually copyright. Yeah, yeah rule books you can it's it's exactly written so it's like you can that's a fairly clear example of plagiarism or copyright infringement but <clears throat> but we could have used some visuals for sure visuals would have helped and even these scenarios like a lot of games would say so for setting up a game I don't want to dwell on this too long but the when you there's a nice big picture in color typically of what the board should look like when it's set up and as far as i can tell here i stand does not do that and they do something else which is irritating to me was that um if you flip over the player aid, I got excited at first because it's like, oh, look, it's got the what it should look like for every faction as when they're set up. And we were all doing that. And then it's like, stop, stop, stop. This makes sense. And then they have it set up for the 1532 scenario, which yeah, is like kind why? of the sped up game. <laughs> why would you pick the scenario the that... The non-main scenario. The non-main scenario for your visual guide, your only visual guide for setting up the game, as opposed to the rule book, which specifically lists each faction. It's very clear. I'm not... It's, it's very clear on this. But it, it'll say, like, uh, so for the Ottoman player, on this territory, put this and this and this. And then on this territory, put this, this and this. And it goes down for everyone. So there's a lot of stuff there. But visually, show me what it should look like when it's done. And I, I think there's some component issues, too, where Harry was saying it didn't look like he had enough piracy tokens on his on his board, mm. which was weird to me because <laughs> this is supposed to be the fixed version, too. But I'd have to research whether or not there's actually pieces missing. It just occurred to me that what we were supposed to do with the electorates was just take off stefan's catholic token because it was a protestant one underneath oh yeah there you go just remove <laughs> it yeah so that would have been a lot simpler than what we we're doing yeah so again there's someone as we're already <laughs> like finding things to fix but yeah the layout anyway here i stand very complicated game but um and enjoyable as far as i know and i'd love to see the diplomacy phase become more uh involved yeah. in the future yeah the, the and that's another thing is that there's uh, suggestions in the rules that you should do uh, something like uh, 26 days if you're doing uh, Here I Stand through correspondence, which I can just imagine how tough that would be. Yeah, so that's it. The rule book even acknowledges the fact that you could be playing this game online and yeah. email correspondence and how to figure out the rules for diplomacy and accepting of these things. So it is an old school game in that, it has that diplomacy mindset of yeah. the people playing this. Like, this is not going to be a game you go to. <laughs> like well, a, it's probably because how we, like, we managed to get enough people that were willing. Yeah. But did they all really want to play Here I Stand? Who knows, right? Or were they just uh, humoring us? Humoring. <laughs> oh, 
Well, I'm glad I was humored. That's all. So. <laughs> but how hard would it be, right? You might you might be in an area where you can't find yeah. six people. And it's got to be easier now with the internet. Like maybe yeah. the game's not even that old, but it's like the days when this would have been very difficult. Like in the '80s, trying to do something like this. But yeah. Anyway, so, speaking of the internet, I've got a new segment for us. It's called This Week in Internet News. I, I wish I had some sound. But I'll, <laughs> I'll just go. No, I'll play. I'll make some noises like the uh, in a modem. This week in internet news, <laughs> upset nerds force a redesign of the live-action Sonic to have bigger eyes. Have you seen this? Yeah, this was all over the place. It looked awful. He looked like a goof, uh, and people got mad, and now he's going to look different. Well, which is going to be a lot of work for the developers. I saw the fixes, and it's like when when random people on the internet are have a better just simple they do it better overall designs. Like you screwed up, but somebody had, this, speaking of this, somebody had a conspiracy theory that this was always like a preliminary model, <laughs> yeah. and they put it out there just to kind of so they could look good. When they we heard your feedback, guys, we're gonna fix it because nobody could have looked at this and said this is what <laughs> this, is gonna this work. looks good. <laughs> Because it, it doesn't. It was so bad it had to be deliberate. That's it what had Jack to be said. exactly. Um, <laughs> Alex Jones. <laughs> warning to Jack: the end game memes are starting to come out, and there's there's some pretty good ones. But uh, officially, the Russo brothers said tomorrow's the day, yeah. or Monday. Last Monday was the day where you can no longer get mad about spoilers. I'm tempted to almost go to see it tonight, maybe as a little mm, a treat go. or something. But it, it breaks my <laughs> non Tuesday. Price. <laughs> Uh, I'd suggest I'd get you a Cinemia, but you know what happened with that. Actually, you should mention that quickly. Oh, so Cinemia was a, what was the one in the U.S., the big one? Movie Pass. Okay. Movie Pass was a subscription service where you would get free movies by paying a subscription, uh, and Cinemia was supposed to be their big competitor. It looked like it was coming out of Turkey or something like that. <laughs> So already it was a little <laughs> sketchy, but it was working. That's the point. I can't remember it the last thing came in a turkey. A solid 10 like... months, it worked really well. And I think it was like $7 a month for two tickets that, a month, is which is half price, basically. Yeah, it was really good. So uh, hopefully I got barely my money's worth. I uh, put up a whole month or a whole year uh, in advance and, you know, got a f- few free movies. But then, you know, they've had so many troubles with legal issues and everything. They've just... They just shut down. Yeah. And so they're gone, poof, into so, the darkness. So, uh, PSA, if somebody is trying to get you to sign up for Synemia, don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> it don't do exist. a year subscription right now. Although that's kind of the model for yeah. a lot of these places. It's like it takes you, you can only do a year's worth. Of yeah, well, that's the thing. Somebody just signs up for a month, gets their tickets for $7, and then cancels. What are they going to do about it? Right? Yeah. Um, so Endgame memes, watch out. And then finally, big news and this is a bit uh, not safe for work. All right. But there was a, a pornographic video filmed in a Tesla on autopilot. I've never heard of this. <laughs> it was number <laughs> one on a popular site. <laughs> and also just outside of um, outside of people watching porn, it's blown up on the internet. It's huge. Everybody's watching this. Um and basically, most people are more interested in watching the car drive. <laughs> <laughs> if you honest, I watched it. And I was just looking at the car and looking at the lines. And, you know, their hand's not on the steering wheel. The guy keeps trying to put his hand kind of near the it, steering is wheel just in case. Is it supposed to be beeping case. at you if your hand's not on the steering wheel? No, it's driving itself. 
So it wasn't one of the. But if it has a problem, maybe he wants to correct it. I thought that was the whole thing though with the self-driving cars was that it you're you're never supposed to technically take your hands off the wheel. That's the rule, yeah. And I think maybe that's what he was doing was uh, making sure that uh, he didn't get the alarm or whatever. Okay. But it was cool, you know. You could see the whole interface there. <laughs> there, I've been in a Tesla twice in my life, I think, and it's. Uh, they're they're very neat cars, but at the same time, it's like we had one vaguely harrowing ride. I think this was two uh, for the Christmas party to get to uh, the office before we got went on the bus, and the driver seemed a little more fixated on like playing around with the center console and he's like mm. showing us buttons and making fart noises and stuff. It's like Whoa. <laughs> this is how Jack dies: somebody <laughs> pushing buttons on a fart noise in a test. I had a guy do in uh, this was on a, in. A... Portugal on the way to the airport the guy was doing video chat with somebody he was looking at his phone doing oh video God. chat driving us to the airport it was terrifying well in Korea how many times were you in a car and somebody the, answers a call well somebody yeah. answers a call or they're watching TV <laughs> as they're driving yeah. it's, oh man this this K-pop or this this Korean soap opera is not that intriguing come on man <laughs> anyway anyway that's this week in news okay. and then I've got a feature for you I watched a uh, podcast or listen to a podcast that was on a lot of podcasts lately and this one was really fascinating this is uh the history of captcha how much time do we have we got six minutes six minutes i could probably do it so what do you know about captcha captchas are the things that prevent me from downloading something <laughs> are you a robot jack no i am not a robot so <laughs> Uh, CAPTCHA is the feature on a lot of websites where you have to check a box to say you're not a robot. And depending on how you check that box, you may or may not have to solve a puzzle. So go on in this, because I always wondered, I thought it was just random uh, based on me pushing that button I, or how many times I had hit and gone to a link of the certain time. Yeah, so it's fascinating. We'll get to it. But uh, first of all, the history of CAPTCHA. Yahoo. Do you guys remember Yahoo? Back in the day, Yahoo had this problem where millions of uh, fake accounts were being made every hour. Yeah. Uh, for the because Yahoo you could just stuff. create a bot that filled out the form. Yeah. And then they would be used for spam. So uh, a guy in Columbia University, can't remember his name, developed CAPTCHA, offered it to Yahoo. Yahoo starts using it, uh, working great, but he's not taking any money for it. He just made it, gave it to them. They started using it. It's crazy. Um, and, you know, you, you remember the old CAPTCHAs. It was some some numbers and letters and some lines struck through it, and it was in a funny I, format. It was I like know a couple of sites that still use stuff like deep that. Deep fried. Yeah, they're using an old version, basically. Uh, so you had to type it in, and it would be something that a computer couldn't solve. Yeah. He wasn't making any money on it, so he made reCAPTCHA. Oh, interesting. And reCAPTCHA... Was fa it's fascinating, Jack. It's uh, basically you're doing the same thing, but you are taking text that w they're trying to digitize all these old documents, all these to old uh, uh, New York Times magazines and everything like that that the computers can't read. They take a little chunk of it and they put it up, and you have to type it in, and then they're using that to uh, to digitize books. But, oh, so you're doing the work for them. Yeah, you're digitizing the book. So they got 20 million entries a day. But how do they know it's correct, what you're typing in? You could be wrong, right? You have to go back and correct things later. But how is it? How does it check, so if, it, if the computer doesn't know what you're typing in, like what's, are you saying it's... Oh, uh, good point. No, actually, yeah, I know the answer to that. Okay. So they give you the regular CAPTCHA to stop you 
and then they ask you to type in the next thing. So the second thing doesn't matter? Is that second thing didn't matter, yeah. Interesting. So I've been tricked. <laughs> yeah. So you were free labor. And everybody, <laughs> millions of times a day, were uh, doing free translations. Yeah. And so uh, I guess a whole bunch of different companies paid him to translate their stuff in this way or digitize their stuff. That's really cool. Uh, long story short, he sells it all to Google uh, and makes a translation uh, program which doubles uh, by doing translation work as well as teaching people the language. You know what that was? Oh, gee, I, I don't know, Joel. What could it be? Duolingo. <laughs> Duolingo. <laughs> That's really uh, cool. But anyway, Google has now had to go to CAPTCHA v2 because bots were able to start uh, solving these ones. And <laughs> the best part is that... Um, they had uh, CAPTCHA farms in China and Russia. Oh, my God. You could pay one U.S. dollar for 1,000 CAPTCHA cracks. There was somebody who was sitting there typing CAPTCHA after CAPTCHA uh, <laughs> there in Russia and China. That's wild. So your bots could use their responses to prove that they weren't bots. So it's this ongoing bot war, yeah. Jack, and it's expanded <gasps> now. So CAPTCHA V2 is, have you checked the box? And basically, maybe your your cursor is shaking or you click in a certain spot where the bots won't click. The bots are always clicking. They're too deliberate. Yeah, yeah. So if you fail that, then you have to do the next step, which is, oh, there's just here's some photos. Click on everything with cars. People hate this one. I get hit with that super constantly. super hard. It's, for me, the part that I don't get is like, and I was going to make a joke about like, is Google trying to figure out what a fire hydrant looks like? Because I'm pretty sure I've helped them a lot with this one. But it's like, it's, sometimes it's like, oh, it's kind of just blended, split into the next frame. But in general, I think there's a certain percentage, like as long as you've got most of it. you got to get good. most of it. Yeah. Is there a little bit of the tire of the car over here? And yeah, it's really frustrating. Uh, bots had a hard time with it. It was much more difficult, but bots have cracked CAPTCHA V2 as well. Okay. So now it's it's basically this the bot war is expanded now. So now CAPTCHA V3 is very secretive. Oh. You'll see at the very bottom of the screen it'll say powered by CAPTCHA. And you know what's happening? You know what the test is? No. Nothing. It's everything you do on that website. Everything you do on that website is observed by a bot yeah. who is trying to decide whether or not you are a person or a bot. So it's like how long, like, was the cursor kind of moving around a little bit or was it like it bursts, instantly moves to this spot, instantly hits select and it's like, yeah. no, that how is long unnatural. Did you look at this text? Yeah. What's your cursor doing? They won't tell us what it's looking at because mm. they don't want the don't other bots. So the bot war goes on, Jack. And if, say, for example, they suspect that it's a bot, maybe they'll force them to log in again or something like that, right? Maybe it's tied to your Google account. It's nuts, the bot wars. This stuff is fascinating, though, because we interact with it so every day. Yeah. And you think about, how does it happen? Who developed it? What's the story behind it? Yeah, the other creepy thing is that there's a bot constantly watching your behavior. Yeah, well, get, get used to it, <laughs> so I guess. So is Google Home. So is Google Home. So is Google. In fact, if you're using Chrome, you're just part of the botnet anyways. Whatever. Very bullying. Anyway, thank you for that, Joel. That was really interesting. No problem. Well, thank you for listening to. Remember, support CFRU if you enjoy quality programming, such as Joel talking about a podcast you listen to and Jack. Oh, for the full version, go oh. to uh, NPR. Uh, it is called Money World. Oh, look at that. Money Episode World. 905. Look up CAPTCHA NPR. Perfect. Yep. 
And aside from that, keep listening to CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca. Shoot us an email at uh, droiddungeonradio at CFRU.ca or uh, whatever, something like that, or on Twitter. But aside from that, have a good fun, and let us know if you play any cool games, too. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye.